Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. So this is our final week in Judges, and my guess is a lot of y'all haven't heard that story, and that's actually one of the reasons that we're reading it um, and talking about it tonight. If you haven't been with us, uh, we've been reading Judges, and Judges 1 through 16, there's this, this cycle of leaders God sends to Israel to help them out. And uh, it's taught us about sin, it's taught us about who Jesus is. And then what happens in Judges 17 through 21, these are the final chapters of the book, is what these chapters are, is two stories, chapters 17 and 18 uh, is one story, and chapter 19 through 21 is another story. And they are two stories of what was life in Israel like when there was no king. And uh, 17 through 18, you should go read them, tell us what religion looked like in Israel when there was no king. And 19 through 21 tells us what happens in relationships when there is no Savior King. So this passage is obviously very aggressive. Um, It's very violent. Um, But I think it becomes very clear over the course of these final chapters what God's point is in telling us the story and what there's to be learned. So let's pray and He would teach us. Father, we thank you for your word, even the dark stories in it. And I pray that as we consider them, that you would show us good things, that you would teach us about ourselves, and you would teach us about you, and you would teach us about this idea of a king, that you would teach us about what it looks like when we live life right in our own eyes and how we need so much more than that. So Holy Spirit, soften our hearts, teach us your name we pray. Amen. Uh, So this is an interesting night if this is your first time to come. And I hope, if nothing else, uh, you'll at least come away and think like, all right, at RUF, they don't like cherry pick from Scripture. They're going to handle the hard parts of Scripture. And that's actually one of the reasons we're reading it. It's for that express purpose. And I had David actually read the beginning of chapter 17 and the last verse of chapter 21 because those verses bookend, they provide the introduction and the conclusion to this whole five-chapter story. And there's this, this refrain that occurs all throughout the story. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes and there was no king of Israel. And again, 17 through 18 shows what happens to religion in that context. And 19 through 21 shows what happens in relationships. And really what the meaning is, what the worldview that God is asking us to consider in this is, is that okay? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What does that mean? And the meaning of that, in short, is this, is to live life in this manner, I am beholden to no one else's sense of right and wrong, except my own. Right? That's their worldview. Maybe ours as well. I am beholden to no one else's sense of right and wrong, except for my own. Last year, a philosophy professor at Stanford, Ken Taylor, debated ethics with a New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright. Maybe some of y'all got to go. And Ken Taylor said as much when he talked to N.T. Wright, and they were debating. Uh, Ken Taylor was talking from a secularist point of view, N.T. Wright, from a biblical New Testament point of view. And Taylor said this, admitting it of himself, In the secular view of things, there is no trumping moral authority. We just have to make up what a well-lived life looks like, even if there's not a purpose. He conceded that. He said, the, basically, all we know is I matter a lot to me. He said, that's my grounding truth. I matter a lot to me. So, he, th- these are Taylor's words. He said, I'm not sure actual human rights exist. 
I just have a feeling of dignity that I think you should respect. And he said, from that we build our moral system as a secularist. And he said, there's no, I, I recognize there's actually no real place of peace in that worldview. If the one governing principle or one governing imperative is, I think I'm important and you need to respect that, the manner in which I say you respect it, right? Not everybody wants to be respected the same way. Different people have different rules and different personalities. But that's what Taylor said, and that's actually what's happening in Judges. Uh, If there's no higher moral authority that we're accountable to, then what we're left with is doing doing what's right uh, in my own eyes. And what we're learning from this passage, I think what we're supposed to learn, is that's the seed of evil and brokenness and pain and suffering in the world. That when there's no Savior King, this is what the the writer's telling us, And everybody does what's right in their own eyes. Everybody does what seems good to them. Everybody does what's best for them. That's the seed of sin, and that is the source of pain and suffering. And what this passage does is actually take us from a really small, manageable, justifiable, not seeming, not really too bad kind of selfish decision. Just kind of, hey, in this situation, I know it's not best, but it's kind of what I want for me right now kind of an innocuous way of thinking about one relationship. And this passage rolls along to show that that tiny shift in thinking of like, hey, my driving imperative, at least in small areas, should be what what makes me happy, what's best for me. That tiny shift in thinking from, there is a king who's called me to live a certain way, to I have ideas about how I want to do this. That's the seed and source of evil. Think about it this way. If you've ever done orienteering, which I was a Boy Scout, I don't know if that just lost credibility in your mind. I was an Eagle Scout. But when you use a compass, if you're off by one degree over 100 meters, it doesn't cost you very much. If you're off by one degree and you walk 100 meters, you've missed your target by a few feet. If you're off by one degree and you you cover thousands of miles, you're off by continents. Does that make sense? That slight shift in thinking has dramatic repercussions much later. And we're tempted to think because it doesn't have dramatic repercussions here now that it's not a big deal. We think our little selfishness and our little prides and our little vices that have little consequences are meaningless. And this passage has come for the purpose of exposing us by taking us through a little issue and showing us that that little issue, that little whatever it is, foible, operates from the same principle that also drives the worst evil in the world. And very simply, what this passage is doing is saying, you know where oak trees come from? Acorns. Little things and big things are integrally related. So how does the story begin? It begins with just a little issue that none of us would really have much of a problem with. You meet a Levite, that means a religious professional, someone that worked in the temple, and he takes on a concubine. Now what a concubine is, is a concubine is a lover, is a second-class wife. What that means is he was married, and he wasn't happy in his marriage, right? These are things we wouldn't blame him. Maybe you've seen this in your own uh, parents' life, right, or friends' life. Not having their marriage, they don't feel connected anymore, she doesn't meet his needs, they're on different pages, their life has gone in different directions. So he takes on a concubine, right? She makes him happy, the concubine does. Here's this woman that understands me. She meets my needs, Like, I connect, I feel alive again, right? Not the best decision, but we kind of understand him. Maybe you've seen that, right? Maybe maybe some of us would even endorse that. Like, yeah, empty marriage, that's no good. Oh, you found someone to connect with, that's fine. That's all he did. 
That's what's happening at the beginning of this passage. The term for unfaithful there actually refers to him abandoning uh, her abandoning him. It's not necessarily referential uh, to sexual morality. Most commentators think it wasn't sexual morality. It was just they were married early. He obviously had another wife, so there was tension. They fought, and she ran home. It's actually pretty understandable. Um, after four months, he decides he wants her back. The dad is excited when he comes. Dad's excited for his daughter to have this man back. They're happy. And they celebrate for five days. There's this joyful reunion before he leaves. Right? Here's a man who is unhappy in his marriage. Found another woman who makes him happy and who meets his needs. They fight a little bit and they're restored. That's what happens at the beginning of this passage. It seems pretty innocuous. At best, just kind of bad, but we'd all kind of justify it. Right? Or we wouldn't have much trouble kind of pushing a justification of it a little bit. Because these things kind of happen. Now, what's wrong here? Why, why is this kind of seemingly innocuous story with just a little bit of a bad element so problematic? It's problematic because they're comfortable with it. Because of the celebration. Because nobody's troubled by anything that's going on. Because he took her as a concubine in order to meet his needs. And nobody has a problem with that. This is what he did. He did what was best for him in a difficult marriage. That's what he did. That was his driving motivation. He did what was going to make him happy. He did what was right for him in his own eyes. And Judges 19 is trying to get us to see that there's no difference between him and actually the mob at the end of the, at the, end of the chapter. The social and the physical consequences were different. We're not denying that. But the principle driving their behavior was the same. And when you don't do business with the little innocuous posture or attitude in your heart, I've got to do what's best for me, I need to do what's going to make me happy, I need to do what's right in my own eyes, when you don't confront that in your own heart, you're actually playing for the same team that raped and killed this woman. You're living by their principle. Even though maybe your sin is innocuous and is small and seemingly justifiable. If the purpose of your life is actually your happiness and doing what seems right and good for you, the logical and absolutely, this absolutely forces you to either consciously or subconsciously think about everyone else in a certain way. If the goal of your life is your happiness, that means you think about everyone else as tools for that purpose. You commodify everyone else. People are to be used not loved. That's what it does. When the goal of your life is your happiness, you make everyone else a tool to be used and no longer an object to be loved. And it seems small. Right? People are to be used for my happiness, not loved. People are are to serve my needs for self-esteem. That's what friends are for. They're not to be loved. So if they don't appreciate me, if they don't come to my thing, if they don't appreciate the things I really care about... Right, My Facebook invite for my event, they don't come. I don't have any use for them. Because they're not there for me to love. They're there for me to use for my self-esteem. And if they don't jump on board with cheering on your self-esteem and appreciating you the right way, what use do you have for them? Right? If they don't conform to your rules of friendship. I can't believe they did that thing. I can't believe they went out and didn't call me. I can't believe they did that with him or with her. They're gone. Because they're their purpose is not for you to love them. Their purpose is for you to use them to make you feel good. Right? 
for making me feel like I have friends. If they don't conform to your rules for being a roommate, then you no longer have any use for them. Because they're not there for being loved. They're there for you having a comfortable living situation. Right? Maybe we even think they're there to be loved so I can be happy. We can even turn this on its head. We can give people affection for the purpose of using them. Can't we? And when they don't respond to our affection by making us happy, then we don't have use for them anymore. Sometimes we actually love them, but completely love them just for us. People are to be used sexually for my pleasure. Whether it's leering at yoga pants, whether it's looking at pornography or hooking up. I don't have time to actually care for them. They're not there for being loved. They're there for me to, be, for me to use for my pre- pleasure temporarily. That's exactly what the Levite did in this passage. He likes her for what she could do for him. He is thinking, I like the way she makes me feel. She makes me happy. He's abandoned the complementary and serving design God has for marriage, that God actually made man male and female, both in His image, equal in dignity and value, complementary in their relationship to each other. And Ephesians 5 said this is what a husband supposed to do in marriage. He's supposed to love his bride and serve her the way Jesus served the church. You know how Jesus served His bride? By giving up His interest and giving up His life, and yes, even giving up His happiness so that she could be happy. Levite's doing the opposite. He's abandoned his bride in order to use the second wife for his own happiness. Right? Marriage was intended to be not self-seeking. Marriage can't make you happy. Ask JJ and Carly because I'm doing their premarital counseling, not because they're incredibly unhappy in their engagement. <laughs> but maybe you are. I, my goal is to make them a little bit more unhappy in their engagement than they already are. But that's our conversation. But the first thing we talk about is you can't get married to get happy. It doesn't work. That's using the other person. Marriage is for serving the other person. Not self-seeking, but actually giving up self-seeking for self-giving. Are people in your life to be used or loved? Is everyone a supporting actor in your story for your own happiness? It can look pretty innocuous and it looks pretty small, as it does at the beginning of this story. It can even look good when we use people. Some of y'all might be familiar with this incredible musician, Sufjan Stevens. He has this song about John Wayne Gacy. If you've heard it, you immediately feel chills. The song is penetrating. It's about this notorious serial killer who raped and killed over 33 teenage boys. It's very gruesome. This is, this is real history. Um, and the song weeps through that tragedy. It's very chilling, both lyrically, but also the way the instrument sound kind of brings you into the sorrow. Here's how he finishes that song. These are the final lyrics. In my best behavior, I am really just like him. If you look beneath the floorboards for the secrets that I have hid. Sufjan Stevens understands something that the writer of Judges also understands. Because he actually says, in my best behavior, I'm just like him. What's he getting at? He's saying, even our good things are warped by selfishness. Even our good things are about me. John Wayne Gacy abused and murdered people because it was what seemed right to him. And if your outlook is people are to be used to make me happy, you can even do good things and use people. Here's a really kind of obvious, simple example. We talk about we're going on a mission trip for spring break. You might have gone on a mission trip. Maybe you volunteered different nonprofits. And we always talk about how you should do it because it's so rewarding. 
would you go if it wasn't rewarding? What if you didn't stand to benefit reward? Would you volunteer? Would you go? That actually means that we're even using the good act of serving others in a disingenuous way. That we don't fundamentally care about them. The reason we all know we don't fundamentally care about them is because we actually treat them as a different type of human being. We would never allow them to actually enter into a peer relationship with us. But we like the way we feel when we go and help them, don't we? We even do good things for ourselves without genuine love. All right? It starts small, it can even look good, but as this passage goes on, it leads to great evil. And that's really the big point here. The story unfolds, and they're on their way back home. He's restored um, to his second wife, to his concubine. They thought about stopping in this place called Jebus. Verse 12, the Levite says, no, 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 no. If you've you've been with us through Judges, um, the Jebusites were Canaanites. They were non-Israelites. They worshiped foreign gods. They've been in uh, battles with them. So this is like enemy territory. He says, we got to walk all the way to Gibeah because that's Benjaminite land. And that's Benjaminites are one of the Israelite tribes. Those are our people. We'll be safe there. They arrive in Gibeah. There's no hospitality. Uh, But they're prepared. So they're going to camp out in the town square. Verse 16, an old man comes and he sees them preparing to camp out in the square. And he's like, you can't stay here. This is not safe. Y'all got to come and sit. Shows hospitality, great hospitality. They enjoy themselves. But then all their fears are realized. And his house is surrounded by these men, the worthless fellows, right? The Benjaminites. And the mob comes and says, those people from out of town, the men, send them out here so that we can know them. And yes, the implication is what you think it is. And he doesn't know what to do. Because they burn his house down and rape everybody. He doesn't know what to do. So he says, take my daughter and take his concubine. They don't want to go. They force the concubine out the door. And listen to the words of verse 24. He says, take the concubine and do what seems good to you. You're supposed to connect that rhetoric. Do what, good se- what seems good to you. They assault the woman through the night, and he finds her dead on the doorstep the next morning. What happens in the following verses, he cuts her into pieces, and he sends a piece of her to every tribe in Israel. And what that does is, if you read the following chapters, 20 and 21, is that sends Israel into a civil war. He's inciting a civil war at this point. Here's what I want you to see about this. What did the guys outside in the town square do? They did what seemed good to them. They used another person for their own pleasure. And all great evil in the world has that as its fundamental root. That is the principle that drives all evil in the world, whether it's big or it's small. And to live that way, doing what's right for me, is to play for the same team as these guys. Even if our foibles are smaller. Because the problem is not the degree of evil. The problem is the principle of evil. The source of evil. And there's no, if, if there's no higher objective moral authority to which we're accountable, then we just do what's right in our own eyes. And you know what that means? If that's the way we're going to live, that just means the strong win. Right? Why does misogyny exist? 
And it exists even in civilized Silicon Valley, doesn't it? Even at Stanford, where we're the most liberal and, and kind of enlightened people on the planet ever, right? And there's profound misogyny here. Guys, if you don't know it, talk to a girl one time on campus. I promise you, you'll find out it exists. Why does it exist? All right, this is way overly simplistic. It exists because, on average, guys can bench press a little bit more than girls. And on what happened at some point in history is men gained the upper hand, created institutions that allowed them to have the upper hand, and ever since then, men have been doing what they wanted, what seemed right in their own eyes towards women. It's the same reason that racism exists. It's the same reason that poverty exists. It's the same reason all sexual violence is done in the name of doing what seemed right to someone. What they wanted, what would make them happy at that moment. The reason parents abuse their children, some of you may know this, the reason parents abuse their children is because their children are failing to make them happy. If you're not careful, you will use your child to try to make you happy and you will hate your child for it. And this passage is here to say that the heart that cheats on a test a little bit, the heart that lies a little bit, the heart that actually gropes someone they're not married to on the dance floor, all for personal gain because it seemed right at the time, it seemed good to you, that's the same principle at work in the greatest moral evil in the world. You're using the same tool. The only difference is in degree. And the reality is, kind of what this passage is teaching us, is that the degree to which we conduct evil is usually just determined by just how many people around us also endorse it. Haven't we all done most of our stupidest things because there's a big crowd around us that has endorsed it and been doing it too? Yes, everybody nod, yes. Degree is really just determined by the audience, not by whether or not your heart's more or less dark than someone else. We have the same heart. This passage is saying... I need to do what's right for me. When, you, when, when that's the way we approach life and humanity, that we deny dignity of everyone else. And that's the sole usher of violence and discord into society and into our hearts. Peace is not attainable if there is no authority to which we are not accountable. And you may feel, but, but we are civilized like... There are cracks, there are some problems, but we are civilized, we're pretty peaceful now, right? With this 21st century, United States, this, doesn't, this place doesn't seem as violent as Gibeah, right, in this passage. Maybe there are other places in the world that are less civilized, that are less enlightened than us, but these sort of things don't happen here, or at least not very much. We handle them very swiftly. We're pretty civilized. And that's kind of true. I actually will grant you that. That's kind of true. Here's my question for you. How have we gotten to our relative peace? Here's how one writer said it. Peace is not our norm. And where we do manage to institutionalize it, which we have to some degree here, it's actually because we've been intelligently pessimistic about human proclivities and found a way to work with them in a, situa- in a, in a system of mutual suspicion, like the U.S. Constitution, a document which assumes that absolutely everyone will be corrupt and power-hungry given half a chance. In other words, our best shot at relative peace that we've kind of secured now and moderate mutual respect that kind of goes on now in our very advanced, enlightened 21st century Silicon Valley, United States democratic society, right? Because we're, we're pretty awesome. That was the result, or is the result, of being incredibly suspicious of each other and building in structures of suspicion 
elections, re-election, term limits, three branches with all these checks and balances, taxes, and wealth distribution. You know what all of that is? That's all of us believing we'd be really bad if other people weren't watching. If you like America and democracy, guess what? You agree with Judges 19. It would be a terrible idea for us to do whatever we wanted and do what seemed right in our own eyes. Don't worry, this is not political. We're not getting more political than that. This is an illustration, right? If you think this country is civilized and peaceful, it's not because man is good. It's because we actually have a really thorough belief that we can't be trusted, and if no one watches us, we would do what was right in our own eyes, and we would use people. And we're actually still not doing that great, because public opinion is not exactly a righteous higher authority, and that's really kind of the biggest authority, right? However... If there is a king, and this is his world, and everyone is made in his image, that his thumbprint is on everyone, that restores dignity to everybody. Guy or girl, rich and poor, Stanford student, homeless, black and white, felon and president, terrorist and nonprofit volunteer. It actually means... That we owe love to everyone. Because they're not play actors in my pursuit of my happiness. And we're not play actors in your pursuit of your happiness. We're image bearers made for God's glory. So you can either concede that the best chance we have is to live in mutual suspicion of each other and hope that periodically our self-interest actually map onto some others so that we can have some allies. And hope that you're a strong, smart, connected one because those are the ones that win. The other option is that there's a king. That's what chapters 17 through 21 were anticipating and begging for. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king. And that king has given moral structure for how humanity is to behave in order to flourish. Namely, that you worship him alone. That you honor your parents. That you rest. That you tell the truth. That you are sexually faithful to your spouse. That you are generous. That there is a holy God whose holiness is pure and good in its objectiveness. And He governs us all. And if that's the case, what are we supposed to do? That's the the worldview of the Bible. No, no, there is a king. He does govern this world. There is a moral structure to it. You can't use people for your own happiness. You're to love people for His glory, which is an incredibly different way of living life. What do we do if that's true? The statement, there was no king in Israel, comes up so many times in Judges, and what's happening is this idea, this longing for a king is being seated. This longing for a king is being sown. That God will send a king to restore order. And David's kingship is the beginning of that promise being fulfilled. Because the very next thing that happens in the Bible is the kingship in Israel. But even in David's kingship, there's all kind of problems. And so in 2 Samuel 7, 12, there's a promise to David. David, there's going to be a king in your line, in your name, and he's going to establish his throne of holiness and righteousness forever. He will be the true and also the eternal king. This was always about Jesus. <coughs> Judges is what the world looks like without a king. Now the question becomes, what does submission look like? Is it simply moral imperative? Right? Shape up, because there's a king. How does the king 
let's put the gospel in the context of this a little bit. How does the king reestablish his reign in the world, but also especially in our hearts? And this is what's amazing about the gospel, and this is what's amazing about Jesus. When, when Jesus comes preaching, oh, go read the beginning of the gospels, read Mark 1. When Jesus starts talking, he doesn't start talking about the cross. He starts about talking about the kingdom of God. He's saying there's a way the world is supposed to be. Kingdom is actually his most constant topic of conversation. Go read his words. That's what he talks about more than anything else. But what does it look like then to kind of come into this kingdom, this new way of living? Because we all instinctively think, and every other religion in some manner or another, and the gospel is this crazy counterintuitive thing to believe, we actually naturally think, well, okay, so what you're saying is to come into the good favor of this true king, this biblical God, this Jesus person, we got to shape up. Turn around and live the right way. Start doing what he wants you to do. But what you'll find is if you try to do that, is that's horrible kingship. That's tyranny. And probably most of us have experienced to some degree or other. It's tyrannical because you'll never know if you're good enough. You'll never know if you've kind of paid the price for all the bad things and the bad way you were living, the selfish way you were living. And your internal thought life will all of a sudden become all about religious and moral metrics of yourself. And you'll judge other people all the time. If you think that's, that's how this gospel, this Christianity thing kind of breaks into people's lives, is we just all start pressuring each other to obey <coughs> How does Jesus inaugurate his kingdom? By doing the one thing we lack the capacity to do. What is Jesus' last prayer in the garden before his arrest? God, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus does the one thing we can't do. He stops focusing on his own happiness and his own desire to use people to make him happy. And Jesus prays the most confusing prayer in Scripture when he says, this is just not about me and what I want anymore. God, I want to do what you want me to do. And that's what takes him to the cross. So that 1 Corinthians 5.15, that he died for his people so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. He's the king who establishes his kingship by humble service, not by moralism, who intends to work his heart into you and into me, not by bullying and threatening you and me to be more moral and more religious, but his humble service and his self-denying service, his sacrificial service. The thing that we couldn't actually do, which is lay aside our agenda and actually love someone well. And love is always suffering. That's what love always is. It's amazing, but it's always suffering. Because love is giving up yourself to make someone else amazing. That's what it is. And Jesus did that in totality. And you... You're melted by it once you begin to understand this is the way He loves you. And you realize that He gives us in His love the thing that actually we were trying to use everyone else to get. Right? We're, using, we're using everybody else to try to get joy. We're using everybody else to try to get acceptance, to try to, get, to try to feel clean. And it's never working. That's why we're frantic all the time and upset all the time. That's why we're cutting friends off all the time. That's why our relationships are a disaster. And that's why we hate school even though we're addicted to it is because we're actually using all these things to try to get from them what only Jesus can give, joy and acceptance and cleansing. And in Jesus, you're free from that. You have it in Him. 
His kingship actually frees us from the slavery of self-love and self-concern and self-obsession and self-protectionism. Freedom is actually when you're no longer beholden to that voice telling you that you are not sufficient and you're not lovable and you aren't worthy. Jesus frees us from that by saying you're loved, you're accepted, you're my child, I've covered you. Nothing invalidates your citizenship in my kingdom because I've taken everything away. The sin that did. His kingdom is established by grace and not by law. That's why Paul says it very directly in Romans 3.20. No one is made righteous. That means no one is made fit for God's kingdom by keeping the law, but rather by faith in Jesus. And Judges 19 is here to show us that self-rule for selfish gain by our own sense of what's good for us is a disaster. And it always will be. And the solution is a good king. And the only kind of king that could actually change our hearts, which is what needs to happen, is one who subdues our hearts with love. By grace and not by shame. So that we actually do begin to live in a new way. But because we're actually freed from self. What Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.14, we're compelled to a new way of, uh, new way of living by being loved Instead of our old way of living, which is actually always compelled by selfishness and fear. So the real question is, do you want to be free? Do you want to love people? Do you want to stop being addicted to the self-love and self-protectionism that's killing us and causing us to abuse each other in small ways and in big ways? Freedom is found in the kingship of Jesus. Let's pray.